7 in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Engineers depend on what are called digital twins, computer-based copies of, say, an aircraft engine or a factory line. They're good for spotting problems or testing possible solutions. And now those same ideas are being applied to the human heart. And much of Vienna's Jewish population was forced out during the Second World War, including the city's unofficial royal family, the Rothschilds. Now a descendant from New York is staking a claim to a Viennese foundation started by his ancestors, but then seized by the Nazis. First up, though. Despite the rhetoric, Britain's departure from the European Union on January 31st was the beginning, not the end of a process. Today, both sides get together to begin discussions about a post-Brexit trade deal. It won't be easy. The British team numbers 100. A conference center in Brussels is being used because the European Commission's headquarters are too small for all the meetings that need to be held. And the differences between what each side wants are huge. The EU's main concern is that Britain will undercut it in areas such as labor, environment, or state subsidies. The UK cannot expect high-quality access to the single market if it is not prepared to accept guarantees that competition remains open and fair. Free and fair. Open and fair. Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who set a deadline for the deal by the end of the year, is pushing back. There is no need for a free trade agreement to involve accepting EU rules on competition policy, subsidies, social protection, the environment, or anything similar. The deal is just one of many that Britain must now negotiate. Today, the government set out its stall ahead of talks with America, saying it plans to drive a hard bargain. How these negotiations go with the EU could set the scene for Britain's trading relationship with the rest of the world. The relationship between Britain and the EU is going to be a fraught one. John Peat is our Brexit editor. Britain has now left the EU and it needs to sort out a complete new trade relationship, relationship on security, data, financial services, fisheries. And that's a huge raft of issues that need to be settled by the end of the year. So there's very little time to do this. And these talks are going to be very difficult and it's going to be extremely um, important for both sides. And what do you think the the sort of main sticking points are? I think the main sticking point is that both sides say they want a free trade deal, a basic free trade deal, a little bit like the deal that the EU has with with Canada. They want to have zero tariffs and zero quotas, so no sort of restrictions on trade. But they have very different views on what is required to achieve that. The British say, that's just straight, we do that, no tariffs, no quotas. The EU says that if we're going to offer you that kind of access to our very large single market, 
we need to have a whole raft of measures in place to make sure you don't undercut us, we don't have unfair competition. They call this the level playing field. They want to have a level playing field on a lot of regulatory areas to make sure that the two sides are balanced. The British at the moment are saying, no, we don't accept any of that. Well, what exactly does that entail, though? Why is that the sticking point? Because what the EU wants to do is to say in fields like labor regulation, social regulation, tax, rules on state subsidies to industry, we want you to observe the same rules, more or less, as you do now as a member of the EU. The British side says the whole point of leaving the EU is to get away from all these regulations set in Brussels, so we don't want to observe any of these rules. There could be some sort of compromise between those two positions, but at the moment it's quite difficult to see how it is reached. And who's got the better of that argument, do you think? I just think at the moment both sides are taking up very firm positions and saying, we're not going to move, you you have to accept our terms, otherwise it's not going to be a deal. I think we will see some weeks, possibly months, in which neither side will move. And then sometime in the summer, they'll say, look, if we continue to take these positions, there's not going to be a deal at all. And the question is, are they prepared to accept that there might be no deal at all and we go to trading on normal rules of the World Trade Organization without a special free trade arrangement? And at the moment, the British side are saying, we will walk away in June if we don't think we're making progress towards a free trade deal. The EU is not being intimidated by that. It's going to be all to play for and there'll be a big bust up in in June. There's something very similar about this situation, about uh, negotiations that that look like they might end in no deal and people throwing around the threat of it. it it's all very familiar, John. Well, we, we had the Brexit vote in June 2016. We started negotiations on the withdrawal agreement um, in, in early 2017. And then for a long time, the previous Prime Minister, Theresa May, was saying no deal would be better than a bad deal. Boris Johnson, as the current Prime Minister, basically is saying the same thing. No deal would be better than a bad deal. I think this time there is reason to think he's more serious about it than Theresa May. He genuinely thinks that it would be better to leave without a deal than to agree on the EU's terms. So I think the risk of leaving with no trade deal in place is much greater this time round than it was in round one. But there is something similar about about the, the negotiating position of both sides. And these, fraught as they are, are just kind of one trading partner we're talking about here. Mean, meanwhile, Britain has to work out its, its trade arrangements with the whole world. Leaving the EU, which has been, in a sense, looking after the British trade arrangements for 45 years, is a complicated thing to do. Um, we have to reinstate our, our tariff schedules at, at the World Trade Organization. And then the British want to talk about free trade deals with other countries, starting with the United States. They're just issuing their their recommendations for what they think a negotiation with the United States should cover. But I don't think that negotiating with the U.S. is going to be any easier than negotiating with the EU. Um, Both the EU and the U.S. are well known for being very tough on trade. Donald Trump is very tough on all trade negotiations. So although the British may start a negotiation with the U.S., I think the chances of it producing an early agreement are quite small. On the other hand, Britain would quite like to be able to say to Brussels, look, if you don't accept a deal on the sort of terms we like, we have alternatives. The alternatives are the US, the rest of the world, we're going to focus on them. So some of this is just about a tactical sort of attempt to persuade the EU that it has more to lose than than it thinks if there is no deal with the UK. What about the very long view here? After the disruption and after the sort of various market shocks that come with all of these things and when all is said and done in in an imagined future where all these deals are struck, what odds that Britain will be ultimately better off? I think it'll take quite a long time to be able to assess whether Britain could be better off as a result of leaving the EU. 
In the initial shock, I'm clear, will be negative. I mean, you're putting up barriers, friction with your largest trading partner. That is bound to have a negative impact on incomes in Britain. What happens after that, I think, depends much more on the sort of policies that governments pursue, what happens to tax levels, what happens to public spending. How you affect your your country's prosperity is much more dependent on what you do at home than what you do abroad. Trade will be an important part of that. I think the European Union is likely to continue to be Britain's largest trade partner. But it is true that the rest of the world is growing faster than Europe. If Britain manages to get a lead in sort of, you know, high-tech industries, artificial intelligence and so on, it could end up really quite a successful, prosperous country. But I think there's a lot to play for before you get there. John, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Seven in 10 full-time workers would consider switching jobs for better benefits. Benefit strategies are crucial to building a competitive advantage. But how can employers meet diverse priorities across industries and demographics? Benefits 2.0 from Economist Impact, supported by Nuveen, a TIAA company, explores how benefits empower individuals, elevate companies, and drive the U.S. economy. Search Economist Impact Benefits 2.0 to learn more. Sponsored by Nuveen, a TIAA company. Here's the truth about AI. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people. Last year was one of the safest on record for commercial flying, according to the Aviation Safety Network. Now, one of the technologies used to monitor the safety of aeroplanes is being used to keep an eye on human health. If you're on a modern aeroplane and you look out of the window at one of the engines, then the chances are that the engines of that aeroplane have a digital twin somewhere down on the ground. Paul Markilli is The Economist's innovation editor. Now, sensors in those engines are feeding that digital twin with data about how the engine is performing and if there's likely to be any problems. Now, that's a great way for fixing problems before they break something and also for servicing the engine. An international team of researchers is working on applying those same ideas to the human body, focusing first on a digital twin of that most vital organ, the heart. I was talking to um, Dr. Tim Chico at the University of Sheffield. Now, he leads the British arm of this project. And what they're doing is developing small digital sensors that can be worn by somebody to provide the data. And then that data is turned into a computer simulation, which shows all the detailed information that you need to know about how a heart is working, how the blood is flowing through it, how the valves are working, and so on. And just like the digital twin used in industry to, say, look after an aeroplane engine, then the doctors will be able to use the virtual heart of the patient to help with their diagnosis and to determine what treatments might be necessary. And they can also model the effects of that treatment because sometimes patients respond in different ways. 
But in the case of the aircraft engine, the, the, the engineering case, the, the sensors are sort of built in. We, we don't have those in hearts. That's where they're having to develop their own suite of sensors. Now, in some cases, there's sensors out there that they can use already. Um, for instance, a health app on a mobile phone or a fitness tracker you can wear on your wrist. And they have indeed got some way down the road with that. But they've got other things coming as well. And um, part of the group in Belgium are working on a wearable heart scanner, which might look something like a vest that you wear. And it will take an echocardiogram of your heart. That's a sort of an ultrasound image of what your heart looks like while it is beating. So that would give real-time hard information of just what your heart is doing when and where it is doing. And also has the benefit, of course, that you know, this can be done at home during your daily life so that when you're walking, running upstairs, whatever you're doing, sleeping, it would give a much more overall detailed picture of how you are functioning. It all sounds great in principle, but how, how close is this to, to actual deployment? You say some things are kind of off the shelf and some still, uh, still in the works. Now, Rod Hose, who's a former, actually, aerospace engineer, who is now an expert in medical modelling at the University of Sheffield, he led a recent European project which actually developed a system similar to this to help treat people with heart valve disease. Now, that used uh, the scans and the information that you would get on clinical visits and combined it with information gathered by patients at home wearing a watch-type health monitoring device. They were able to model what the heart valve disease looked like in individual patients and to predict the outcome, such as whether this patient would benefit from replacement heart valve surgery. And that is very close to clinical use. And I suppose you could sort of test drive some medical interventions on the digital twin itself. That's exactly the idea, just as you might uh, model the effects of reconfiguring your factory, because some factories have a digital twin, so if you want to put something new into production, you can do it virtually and say, oh, actually, we can't make that. So you could do the same thing with a digital heart. You could say, well, what if we replace this or we operated there? Would this work? Would this outcome help? And in fact, the digital twin and the sensors could be worn post-treatment to actually monitor and get very good results on exactly how any intervention plays out. Well, at, at this stage, why, why stop at the heart? Why, why couldn't we have a, you know, a full-on sensor jumpsuit looking after all our organs? Well, you know, that has been thought about in the past, not actually in a digital sense, but in a physical sense. Could you sort of take slices for a whole human being and recreate what it looked like? There's been various ideas about this. Well, indeed, it might well be possible one day to have a system that's good enough to create uh, your own digital self that resides on your health record. So whatever happens to you, it's modelled and it could be helped to treat you. Now, that would be a long, long way off, but um, it's just an extension of the work that is currently going on. Paul, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure. At the turn of the 20th century, there were 150,000 Jewish people in Vienna. Today, there are just 7,000. After the devastation of the Second World War, only a tiny fraction of the city's Jewish population came back. 
Austria's unofficial Jewish royal family, the Rothschilds, also moved away. But now, one of their descendants is returning. Jeffrey Hoget, a distant cousin of the Rothschilds who have a stake in The Economist, wants to regain control of a multi-million dollar foundation that his family set up to treat Vienna's mentally ill. The foundation was set up in 1907 by Albert Freiherr von Rothschild in memory of his brother Nathaniel, who had recently died childless and who left the incredible sum of 20 million crowns to finance hospitals to help find a cure for the mentally ill. To this day, it's the most generous charitable donation in Austria. Wendelin von Bredo is The Economist's European business and finance correspondent. The foundation ran successfully until 1938, when Nazis overran the authoritarian government in Austria and confiscated the foundation. It was reinstated in 1956. Austria only became an independent Second Republic in 1955. But in 56, the city of Vienna took over the management of the foundation, and the city has managed the foundation ever since. So one of the descendants of the Austrian uh, Rothschilds, uh, Jeffrey Hoget, uh, who works in finance in New York, is taking the city of Vienna to court over its management of the foundation set up by his ancestor. So what is it that, that Mr. Hoget wants? So Mr. Hoget wants several things, but his most pressing demand, I guess, is he wants to go back to the original structure of a 12-member committee running the foundation. Nine of the members of the committee should be nominated by the Rothschild family. He also wants to nullify a clause that the city of Vienna added in 2017, which says that if the foundation were dissolved one day, all the wealth of the foundation would go to the city. The third thing he asks is that the sale of valuable real estate, in particular one Baroque palace called the Maria Theresia Schlössel, is nullified. Because he feels that the city of Vienna, which sold the palace to itself at a ridiculously low price, and he thinks the foundation could have done much better had the city of Vienna not sold it to themselves. So why is he tackling this now? So one could ask oneself, you know, why is Mr. Hoggett taking this case on? Because to him, it's a lot of hassle, a lot of uh, work, and he doesn't stand to gain anything financially. But he is based fighting for the idea that his ancestor wanted the foundation to stand for. But he also told me that he got ill about 10 years ago. He suffers from Parkinson's disease. And ever since, he's been very interested in psychiatric and neurological illnesses, which is why this particular foundation is close to his heart, and he wants it to be run the way his ancestor had envisaged. So the foundation has been run by by authorities in Vienna for for more than 60 years. What does it think of these, these demands? The city of Vienna rebuts all the accusations. It says we've always been very respectful of the Rothschilds, and we've always been responsible in dealing with our Nazi past. And they also say that the wealth of the foundation had dwindled to just 8 million euros from about 120 million um, in 1907, and that it, so the city of Vienna, has invested 500 or 600 million euros over the years, ever since it took over the foundation in 1956. 
So it feels it has done a good job. It's doing what the founder wanted it to do. And basically, they deny all the accusations. And what about the the courts, the ultimate arbiters of this question? What, what's what been said? So the uh, presiding judge, a lady um, called Ursula Kova, basically reprimanded the city for how it's just taken over the foundation. And she warned that the wish of the donor is not being respected. And what she recommends is that the two sides talk to each other and try to compromise and try to find a solution that makes both sides happy. But there will be another hearing. A date has not been set yet, but this is not the end. So there's no verdict and it's still an ongoing case. And I, I guess a, a bigger issue underpinning all of this is is the question of the original Nazi expropriation and, and how Jews were treated in, in Austria. Has what, what do you suppose this case tells us about that? The story of the Rothschild is is sort of a parable of the treatment of Jews in Austria after the war. The Rothschilds have not been well treated by Vienna, by the hometown of the Austrian branch. The Rothschilds were maybe the second most important family in Austria after the Habsburgs. But until 2017, no street or square was named after the Rothschilds. Their palaces and the Rothschild Hospital in Vienna was torn down after the war. And it's almost as if all the memory of this very illustrious family has been erased. It tells you something about how Austria deals with its Nazi past and it almost pretend it hasn't really happened. Or in any case, they were the victims rather than the perpetrators. So it seems easy to imagine then that, that Mr. Hoggett's ancestors would be would be glad that he's going to bat for, for their legacy. It's almost surprising, I guess, that after being not well treated by Austria after the war, they still have so much fondness for the country. And Mr. Hoggett even said, you know, I want to do something for the country that has given me so much, even though, you know, it's also taken a lot. But there's still a great appreciation and maybe also a nostalgic idea about Austria that these that the descendants have. Gwendolyn, thank you very much for your time. Pleasure to chat with you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org economist.